This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Um, we've been looking at the the nature of um, Satan and his attack upon believers, and um, we have um, seen that Satan is a deceiver and that he is a destroyer, and um, we want to pay attention this morning to an important aspect of the nature of Satan, and that is that he desires to be ruler. And uh, this includes ruling your life, uh, that he has a desire to rule your life, and there are consequences out of that that we will discuss this morning. So um, that is is part of the... Um, uh, the purpose of Satan, that he would try to be a ruler of your life. So uh, let's let's move into this message here this morning and look at how Satan attacks the ruler. Now, Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you for your word, uh, Lord, and we thank you for revelation that comes from your word. And we ask that you would give us a deeper revelation and understanding of the nature of our enemy uh, help us to draw closely to you and to your word and to cling to uh, the strengthening that the Holy Spirit gives us uh, through your word and as we walk with you so that we might be strengthened against all of the assaults of the enemy. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay. So a number of um, scriptures to begin with, all taken from the NASB uh, this morning. Um, as usual. John 12, 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now I have told you before, John 14, I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. 1 Timothy 3, verse 6 and 7. You can read the preceding verses, some instructions about how to appoint people into ministry and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil as a repetition of an idea going there. So when you see the repetitions uh, of ideas in Scripture, you should pay attention to that. And so there is a, a condemnation, there's a snare, there's a reproach of the devil um, that we can fall into if we're not uh, cautious. Proverbs 16 Verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling or before a fall. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, have you ever thought, I wonder if you've ever considered what might be David's greatest sin? Because I think when you ask people that question, usually immediately people will go to the um, 
uh, the the sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband killed in battle. And though this was terrible, there's no doubt this was a terrible sin and it's recorded in Scripture for us to, uh, to know and understand more about the, the nature of God and the nature of humans, what we're, what we're like. Um, uh, but there was another sin in David's life that had much more severe and, uh, and greater consequences than this one. David's adultery led to the death of a few people, uh, Uriah, the baby, um, and then there is Amnon and Absalom later on. But because of David's other sin, 70,000 people died as a consequence of David's other, other sin. So when David confessed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he said, I have sinned, which is good. That's how um, repentance should be marked. It should be marked with that contrition of heart that identifies my personal sin. God, I have sinned against you. But when he confessed to this other sin, he said, I have sinned greatly. And so there's a declaration within that statement that is of um, much greater importance. It's, it's of a, a much greater degree of severity. So what was David's other sin and what part did Satan play in it? Well, you, you might want to turn to First Chronicles 21. Um, I'll have the scriptures up here on the screen in, in a moment. But First Chronicles 21 is where you can uh, get a hold of this story and you'll be aware of, of the, um, the account, I'm sure. Um, but the way the scripture records this for us is fascinating because it starts in First Chronicles 21 verse 1, then Satan stood up against Israel. Now, this is important because this is part of this, uh, this assault of the enemy against the people of God and that the enemy, the enemy is constantly uh, seeking ways in which he can move against the people of God so that he can coerce them, uh, manipulate them into uh, deploying his will in the world. So reading this text, and I've broken down some of the verses, but you go back over and read the whole chapter. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. This is a census, but there were very strict requirements about a census being conducted in the nation of Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the world of, of the people, "Go number Israel from Beersheba, even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number." Joab said, "May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants?" Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? So Joab, who is not particularly a spiritual person, he recognises that there's something wrong in this and that the, the motivation, David's will in this, is, is not according to God's will. And uh, he recognises immediately that there is going to be a guilt upon Israel because of this action. Um. If you skip down to verse 7, it says, God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. 
David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And uh, you can see the, the, the substance, the strength of David's confession there, that uh, I have sinned greatly um, in doing this thing. Take away the iniquity of your servant because I've done foolishly. They're, they're powerful words. 21 verse 14, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. Now, this um, is a, a phrase of, of mourning uh, and, and grieving there because they're, they're grieving over the destruction that's come. And in David's case, this is a destruction that has come by his will um, and as a result of his will to number the people. Um, and we'll get into that as to why later on. But um, uh, he. Um, enacted his uh, servant to go and commit to this task and it brought the anger of God. Verse 17, David said to God, this is, remember, he's, he's mourning now, he's grieving. Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? O oh Lord, my God, please let your hand be stayed. Uh, let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Orn and the Jeb Jebusite. So David went up at the word which he spoke in the name of the Lord. It's a, a powerful story. Um, it, it presents a lot of things to us. Um, it presents the manipulation of the enemy that he seeks to manipulate the people of God. It presents um, the heart of David that filled with pride. He wanted to know the extent of his kingdom for his own namesake. Um, and this was not in accordance with how God would uh, command that the people be numbered. Um, according to how the pattern was laid out with Moses, a bit more on that later on. Um, but it also presents to us a truly repentant heart and a, and a prayer of intercession, pleading with God not to take out this vengeance on the people. And that then shows us the extent to which a, a willful sin uh, can have powerful, powerful impact in the world around us. And that, that's a very important point for us to understand um, that you and I can commit to a sin that has a far-ranging effect upon those around us, and not just our, uh, ourselves individually, but our families. It can extend out into our churches um, and, you know, even beyond, depending on the sphere of influence that we may have uh, socially. 
So we are talking about the enemy as the ruler. So that's uh, up there in the top left of your screen. So to understand this, we'll look at two points this morning. And the first one is that when Satan, he seeks to be the ruler of your life. So when we talk about your life, we're, we're talking about, and I've talked about it many times, this heart-mind connection. We often talk about the heart, to love someone. Um, you know, oh, my heart was thrilled or enamored or whatever it might be. And we describe these experiences in life as being something just of an emotional nature apart from the mind. And then we think about the mind, and this, this comes down through the Hellenistic schools of learning. We think about the mind as separate from the heart, and we just think that the mind is the place of intellectual reasoning. But biblically, that's not correct. Um, it's not even correct anyway, It's you know, biblically or not. Um, the idea that somehow the heart is this seat of emotional experience is just a fallacy. Our emotions are born uh, in this place of reasoning and our emotions can be out of balance for sure um, and there are many reasons for that and part of the reason is that when we get certain experiences in life, when they're positive experiences, we reinforce those experiences by committing to doing things again that will give us that emotional feeling. And when we have a negative experience, we try and avoid that so that we, we don't have that negative experience pushing back on our lives. And so we kind of try to insulate our emotions from the negative and reinforce what we think to be the positive. And the problem with this is that you and I are not naturally balanced creatures. Um, we we then become emotionally imbalanced because we're not dealing with the whole range of emotions that we should and processing them properly. And this is one of the problems with drug addiction um, and it's something that Suzanne and I learned a, a bit about, not through our personal experience so much, but in dealing with um, others who have been drug addicted, that uh, the emotional pain of experiences in their life is simply trying to be um, inoculated through drug addiction, that people are uh, addicted to drugs to try and eliminate the feelings associated with the emotional pain that they've been bearing. But this idea of the mind and the heart is incorrect. The mind and the heart are interconnected. The, the seat of intellectual reasoning and emotional reasoning are very strongly connected together. And in fact, without a balanced emotional response, we don't intellectually reason things properly. And without a reasoned intellectual process, our emotions will run away with things and we'll make incorrect decisions on that front as well. So all of that's a little bit of an aside to the message, but it kind of puts some of the stuff concerning the will into focus. So Satan's target in seeking to be the ruler of your life is that he, he desires to, or he targets your will. Um, he targeted David's will. Satan's goal is always to get to your will and control it, and he may begin by trying to deceive, deceive like he did with Eve, or by attacking the body like he did with Job. And the, and the attempt there is to use both the 
the mind and the, and the body as a mechanism to come into that person's life to try and sway the will. Um, what do we mean by this? Well, if you went through a prolonged period of physical suffering, your will can be can be damaged out of that and and you can start to groan and say, why me, God? Why me, God? Because your focus is on yourself during that time and you can start to think to yourself, I don't deserve this. What have I done to deserve this um, suffering that I'm going through, et cetera, et cetera. So ultimately, whether it's deception or, or physical assault, the enemy is trying to get to your will and um, in Satan, in David's case, uh, he he didn't so much focus on the mind and the body. He went to um, directly to his will, and he did this through pride. Um, David's mind was not so much deceived. Um, uh, he wasn't physically suffering. In fact, he had come off the back of a number of noble uh, victories. And um, uh, so it wasn't so much a case of deception or suffering um, that led to this. But we must never underestimate the importance of the will. You and I must never underestimate this. I think too many believers live in either intellectualism or emotionalism. So they're in, in one extreme on one hand or in the other extreme on the other hand, uh, living in either of those two um, two states, intellectualism versus emotionalism. And, the you know, the first type, the intellectuals, they're always trying to satisfy the mind about any uh, changes to, to life. Um, they're always trying to approach things on a um, cerebral uh, kind of way. They'll discuss the Bible and argue it to uh, to the minutest degree, but often you can find that people who are living this way, and, and it's far too often, you'll find that many of these people um, are not living the scripture. So there's an intellectual assent to it, which, which feeds the pride of their hearts, but not a submission to the scripture. And so the second type, the emotional ones, they're, they're all charged up on feelings. They go to meetings um, and the meeting is centred around feelings. The preaching is centred around feelings. Um, and, and unless they're on some kind of emotional high, they think that God has somehow forsaken them or uh, rejected them in some way. So God wants the entirety of the inner man to be devoted to him. So. He wants um, an, an intelligent mind um, and he wants a fervent heart and an obedient will. So now when I say he wants an intelligent mind, we all have limitations. Um, you know, there, there are different limitations. Some people are smarter than others. But no matter where our level is in the, in the scale of things, we come into the Christian life at a certain level and we don't need to stay there. God can slowly uh, grow us in the Christian life intellectually um, as well as uh, strengthening us in our will and in our emotional resolve to serve him as well. So our obedience is to be, Christianity is not a, a mindless 
religion. It is an intelligent religion, and it ought to be motivated by a warm and loving heart toward the Lord and toward his people. The Christian life is essentially a matter of the will. Understand that this morning. The success and failure in your Christian life will, in almost every situation, come down to a matter of the will in the choices you made or or, or ignored um, at those times. Um, and so a, a man who falls into adultery, take that word falls out. It's not a fall into adultery. It is a headlong march into a rebellion against God, into a, a breaking of marital vows. Uh, you know, that is not a, um, uh, it's not a fall. It's not just, you know, it's something that a person did and violated many steps along the way to get to that point of committing that action. So we are to love the Lord with all our heart, the emotional side, uh, with our mind, the intellect, and these two go together, but also with our strength, the will. So this ties right in from the earliest times when the Lord said that he is the Lord our God and we're to love him with all our, uh, uh, our, our, minds, uh, our heart, mind, and, and will. So the Holy Spirit seeks to do um, a number of things. He seeks to uh, uh, inspire or, or instruct the mind through the Word of God. Um, so, the, so in other words, there is to be a feeding of the mind through the Word of God, okay? So he seeks to do that. That is his desire for you, that he would instruct your mind through the word of God. He also seeks to inspire your heart with true emotions. Um, look, we can go down a major rabbit trail here. Um, and I, I, I won't venture into it too far enough to say that uh, almost all of the social justice warrior movements uh, focused around a false and a, and a manipulated emotional state um, that sees a certain situation apart from any of the facts and says this this must be rectified by you know whatever aid package that you want to bring into that situation, and it, it that is false because it doesn't take into account in any way how that situation occurred. How did this situation become what it is right there? So um, that's one aspect of the falseness of the social justice warrior movement. Um, but also, not only is there the instruction of the word and the strengthening of uh, the, the inspiration of the heart, but there is a strengthening of the will that the Holy Spirit desires he desires to strengthen your will to do the will of God. So he desires to strengthen your will to do the will of God. A dedicated Christian prays whether he feels like it or not. Um, the believer who lives on his emotions will always struggle and fail at many of these things, and then condemnation comes into the picture. 
where where he feels condemned by his own failings. Um, he lives on a religious roller coaster, but a dedicated Christian obeys the word regardless of his feelings. That's the nature of faith. That faith takes the word of God and applies it and trusts it regardless of the external circumstances around and what they may be saying uh, to the individual about about the reality. So um, uh, the believer who lives on the basis of spiritual willpower has a consistent Christian life. In other words, what I mean by that is that when their willpower is not determined by their own emotional state, but instead their willpower is being determined by the word of God. God said it, that settles it. I will trust the Lord, right? When a believer is taking the word of God and applying it to their lives and walking in that, then they have a consistent willpower to walk in obedience and they live a Christian life. You know, a steady Christian life is not um, affected by changing circumstances. Uh, and I think the the whole um, issue of these lockdowns, and regardless of whether this is a globalist agenda or any such thing, one thing is for sure, that out of this whole situation of locking down people's lives in Western countries, the Christian church is being tried and they're getting a little taste of what it's like to be in a persecuted nation, uh, maybe in China or Vietnam or some other country where under persecution you're forbidden from attending church services um, and and have to rely on the small fellowship with only family or friends or maybe even just with yourself to read the word of God and pray and rely on God to strengthen you in that. That takes a strength of will that is instructed in the mind through the word of God, inspired in the heart with true emotions and strengthened uh, in the will to do the will of God. This is what the Holy Spirit is seeking to do in your lives. So. Satan targets your will, and this is because your will is important in determining your character. Just think about for a moment if you've ever started something and not finished it. Now, I'm not going to sit on that for a long time, but that is an indication of either a weak will or poor forward planning, one or the other. Usually it's one of those two, that um, uh, the poor forward planning, uh, you didn't see that you weren't going to be able to complete this task, or the weakness of will uh, was such that you didn't complete the task simply because you gave up. Decisions shape character. And so when you give up, that's a decision. Decisions chart the directions of your life. So when you see it through, that is a decision. This is where most marriages fail. A, a couple um, proceed for a long time in, in a certain direction, in a right direction, and then, uh, you know, the, the flame is flickering and, and dwindling, the flame of this emotional love that they felt. And, um, and so decisions start getting made, and they're not always good ones. So 
you know, we have to be careful because one of the um, tendencies of human nature is that we will blame circumstances, blame our feelings or blame people, and this is just an excuse. So, you know, when a guy is asked, oh, why did you leave your wife? Oh, we just didn't feel in love anymore, you know. Um, why did you, uh, you know, why did you do whatever it was? I'm just going to keep saying the same thing. Leave your wife. Well, circumstances had changed, you know. Um, why did you react that way? Well, this person aggravated me and so I exploded. Um, decisions will determine your character. And so we have to be really careful about the kind of decisions that we make and how we follow them through. Because if we want to just blame our circumstances, um, our feelings, or this is, this is my problem with this, um, the main problem with uh, our whole issue within the nation of um, uh, stuff like the Black Lives Matter and, and things like that, is that we have people living in our country who are saying that um, you know, my life is a failure because um, a white man invaded my homeland 200 years ago. Now, um, once again, we're down a bit of a rabbit trail, but it's, it's a good example of this kind of thing because... I, I didn't ask to be born here. I'm the fifth generation born in Australia, and I'm here not by any choice of my own. I have no other home country. I'm not English. I'm not Scottish. I'm not Irish. They may be my ancestors five generations ago, but, but I'm here in Australia by no uh, will of my own, so I am Australian, and I can't blame my ancestors for their choice to come here. Neither can you if you are um, Aboriginal or native to the country. Uh, you know, you can't blame the Western uh, ancestors and explorers and the colonial, colonialists for your circumstances today. So we have to be careful because these things are become a very embedded excuse and, uh, and that excuse can become very debilitating in the Christian, Christian's life. It's, it's the will that has to, has to direct the actions of life. It's the will that has to do that. So you were saved by saying, I will, essentially. Um, I'm not going to get into the theological debate, but, you know, you responded to the call of God and uh, you bowed your knee in repentance and took Christ as your saviour. You grow and serve by continuing to submit to the Lord and to his will and saying, your will is my will. Let my will be your will. So many Christians have the idea that Christian love is a feeling, but Christian love is, is more of a willing, not a feeling. We are commanded to love one another, um, and God cannot command your feelings. In fact, obedience to the command is often an overcoming 
of the feelings that we have because we may not feel a lot of love for a person, but when we walk in obedience to God and we respond properly to that individual uh, with biblical love, we find God changing and shaping our hearts, even though technically we may not like that person um, because of different personalities and things like this. So we may not be in the bond of a close relationship, but we can love that person as needed in, in Scripture. So Christian love simply means that we treat others as God treats us. So we treat others as God treats us. And, um, you know, this, this involves the will because there is a great deal of overcoming the will in order to treat others as God has treated us. And this is why Philippians 2 is such a powerful chapter, because it says to us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it talks about his actions and then says that's what we're to be like, even to the point of sacrificing our lives to death for others. So there are some believers you may love biblically without really liking their personality, that's not a problem. We're not all necessarily going to be friends, and but we should demonstrate genuine biblical love to one another, not just a facade or, or, or a, um, a show of some kind of emotional, um, you know, um, support or whatever it may be. So doubtlessly, in fact, I would say that some of those people that you don't necessarily like or click with, God brings them into your life to teach you how to love. So there's a thought for you to ponder um, because he's trying to get you to be obedient to Scripture in loving those that you would not normally love. So now staying on track, Satan's original sin was a sin of the will. You know, five times in Isaiah it records that he said, I will. I will, I will. And um, uh, so he seeks to duplicate in us um, the sin of his life. He wants us to exercise our will against the Lord. This is what he desires. And, um, you know, he's the, the, and I know there's contention about this, and I can tell you I'm no Presbyterian with this idea of that somehow we're in the millennium and Satan is chained but on a long chain. Um, the scripture says that he's the ruler of this world. That doesn't mean that he's without authority. Um, he has authority. God is his authority, but there is a, uh, even though he's been defeated, he has influence in this domain. Um, and just because he's the ruler of this world in loose terms, um, that doesn't mean that he has creative authority and things like that, um, and he cannot just act without uh, submission to God. But we are citizens of heaven. So earth is not our home. So it doesn't matter that, that whether Satan is the ruler of this world. Earth is not our home. You and I are citizens of heaven. So... Uh, we are to obey and submit to the Lord's direction. Satan, on the other hand, wants us to worship and obey him. That's what he desires for us. He wants us submitted to his will. Now, what weapon or weapons, 
chiefly, we'll look at one weapon. Actually, we'll look at one weapon. What weapon does he use to tempt us? Well, Satan targets your will and his weapon is pride. So in our text in Chronicles, um, when we read about David numbering the people, David was, was actually riding high at that stage when Satan attacked him. He had come off the back. You can look in First uh, Chronicles 20. He'd come off the back of a series of successful campaigns. Um, he had captured a very, very valuable crown that had then been put on his own head. Um, and though he had these victories, um, yet he lost the internal war uh, in his own life, didn't he? So the reason is that Satan used the victories that David experienced to inflate his ego and his self-importance. Well, there, there is nothing better for an individual in so many ways than to experience failure in life at, at whatever level, at many levels. So Satan used these victories to inflate David's ego and his self-importance and then to rebel, you know, enticing him a rebellion against the will of God. Um, his adultery with Bathsheba was a sin of the flesh. But when he numbered the people, this was a sin of the spirit. This was a sin from the, the deep and the internal workings of the, of the human person here. His ego was affected by his victories. And as a consequence of that, he was manipulated uh, by the enemy. And verse 1 of Second Chronicle, uh, First Chronicles 21 explains that to us, that, uh, that Satan moved him to do this. And this was a sin of pride. And so, you know, when he numbered the, uh, the people, it was a sin of the spirit. It was a sin of the inner workings of the man. Um, and so we have to be careful. There's obviously a crossover in the, the sins of the spirit and the flesh because a, a fleshly sin can be uh, rooted in a spiritual condition such as pride. Um, and, and possibly David's sin with Bathsheba was, was rooted in that. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, uh, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit are both to be avoided, according to 2 Corinthians 7. They're, they're both to be um, uh, to to be. They both they both receive a caution, um, but it's often true that the sins of the spirit go unnoticed, and um, especially within a local church, a common failing is that we condemn a brother who falls into a sin of the flesh, while we ourselves harbour sins of the spirit, and this is the idea of the the speck and the log that we see the fault in someone else. But by comparison, there's, there's a log hanging out of our own eye and, um, and we don't deal with that. And sins of the spirit are very deep and abiding sins. And so, you know, when we uh, think about for a moment the prodigal son, um, he was guilty of sins of the, of the flesh. There's no doubt about that. But his brother 
was guilty of sins of the spirit. And this is a fantastic illustration of this very thing. The sins of the um, uh, flesh and the sins of the spirit. It's worth noting that David's sin of numbering the people resulted in 70,000 people dying, being killed by the Lord. His sin of adultery led to the death of four, four people. There's a huge contrast. And so sins of the spirit have a wide-reaching ramification to them in many cases. Um, local churches, you know, we can often be really quick to um, condemn those who fall into sins of the flesh, but um, not so quick to judge members um, who are guilty of sins of the spirit. That is often the case. Far too often is that the case. So, you know, um, what kind of things could we overlook? And, and this can be overlooked in pastors and church offices, um, you know, uh, leaders within the church. We can overlook things like pride and stubbornness. We can say, oh, he's resolute. Um, you know, all these kinds of things, or we can say he's got a deep conviction on that, um, when it may just be stubbornness, um, you know, gossip, jealousy, competition, bragging, the list goes on and on. Um, to some degree, pride is in the background, I think, of almost all of Satan's uh, temptations of us. You know, with Eve, you shall be as God. Uh, and, you know, Job had to listen to his friends criticizing him and, uh, and being very critical on the situation. And, um, you know, he wondered why God did not appear to vindicate him. So, you know, that's pride. And that pride was dealt with as you read through Job. When Satan tempted the Lord himself, he appealed to human pride. Uh, Matthew 4, 8 through 9, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. This is one of the dangers of great success, and I'll, I'll read the other texts in a moment because they, they have um, uh, each got corresponding thoughts associated with them. But pride glorifies the individual while robbing glory from God. And that's really important for us to understand, that pride glorifies me and robs glory from God. So um, a good question for us in life is, does God receive the glory he deserves out of this? First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So what was so wrong with David numbering the people? Because it had been done by Moses, um, an annual census had been done. Um, and, but 
but when it was done under Moses, it was done as a reminder that they had been purchased by God and it was a requirement that every male of 20 years of age or more was to give a, a shekel or a half shekel, I think it was, for ransom money. And that was a reminder to them that God had brought them out of the land of Egypt and that he had redeemed them. Um, and there was a warning that was associated with this um, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. So the purpose of this numbering that Moses did was that God would be glorified through that. When David numbered the people, he did it for his own glory. And interestingly, there's no record of the redemption money that was to be paid during that time. So it was the king's word. The king wanted the people numbered, not not God. He didn't want the people numbered. In fact, it, it may be that God was resisting David numbering those people so that David would walk by faith instead and just trust God that the nation was in his control, not in David's control. And so, um, you know, it was pride that motivated David's actions and not the glory of God. Um, This explains why Paul, um, we've talked about this recently, but it explains why Paul admonished Timothy, not to put new Christians into places of spiritual leadership. 1 Timothy 3, verse uh, 6, and not a new convert. So this is on the appointing of leaders, and not a new convert lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So, you know, if you put someone into a position of leadership, the the enemy often um, uh, speaks to them and he um, says, well, now you're somebody important, and it may not be in those words, but, but you know, he, he starts pr- prompting them in that way, and it's not long before pride come, um, comes to take over and this person becomes a problem to the local church rather than a blessing to the local church. And John had this problem. You see 3 John verse 9 listed there as well. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Imagine refusing to accept the words of an apostle. And so Diotrephes, he thought that he knew better than John, the beloved. So um, this is really important for us to understand this. And then there's also 1 Timothy um, 6, 3 through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, and does not agree with sound words, those of, uh, uh, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. So Satan is desiring to work within the local church and one of his chief methods of working within the local church is the mechanism of pride. 
uh, get it past it, proud of his preaching skills. Um, you know, I can become proud of my IT skills in, in not missing to uh, unclick the mute button. Um, uh, get a Sunday school teacher proud of um, their uh, development of the class's growth or, or a believer proud of his skills in uh, um, relaying the gospel to people. If he does this kind of thing, and there can be many things, a musician proud of his musical ability, um, whatever it may be, he gets a foothold within that person's heart out of that to cause in them, um, uh, in that in that hold uh, within their lives, an ability to be able to manipulate them uh, for his purposes. And um, uh, so let's let's move on as we uh, come to the end of this. King David brought death and sorrow to Israel simply because he was proud. So in Satan seeking to be the ruler of your life, um, he targets your will. He wants you to become weak-willed and surrender. To become weak-willed, he'll starve you from the word of God and cause your heart and, and the emotions to be jaded toward God, um, maybe becoming enamored with yourself um, so that pride is then manifest because this is his, his target as you will and his weapon is to induce pride in you in some way that would cause you to resist the will of God and put in place your will. This is what the enemy wants. And so we will uh, look at this further uh, next week. He targets your will and his weapon is pride. Praise God. So these are powerful thoughts for us to consider this morning. Very very powerful thoughts for us to consider here this morning. And, um, uh, you know, we these kinds of things, they're, they're fairly basic um, instructions, I know, um, but it's good for us to be reminded. If somebody of the stature of King David can be prone to these failings, you and I can be also. Um, and that's really important for us to to remember that that you and I can be can be prone to the same failings uh, that David was prone to. So, um, praise God. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.